Hello everyone, thank you once again for choosing the JGT podcast. As always, you are very welcome. Today's guest is one of the UK's uh, best-loved and long-established saxophone players, Chris Snake Davis. I followed his career for many years and always enjoyed his melodic and soulful playing. He's gone from a gigging sax player travelling around the country in a van, playing with punk bands and function bands, to collaborating with soul legends such as Edwin Starr, Rose Royce, Sister Sledge, The Three Degrees, Ruby Turner, Martha Reeves, and from the pop world, the Eurythmics, George Michael and Kylie. And let's not forget, he wrote the iconic sax solo on Take That's Hit, A Million Love Songs. During lockdown, he's kept busy with a live stream YouTube gig every Friday and Sunday evening at 7pm. And like most professional musicians, has had to press the COVID pause button on his usual diary of tours, studio sessions and gigs. He is without doubt one of the most sought after session players in Europe. He's a true industry professional and a thoroughly nice bloke. When you read about the trust, he was more than happy to help us and I'm very grateful to him for that. Incidentally, the name Snake comes from the way he moves on stage. When he's playing solo, you'll see the more he gets into it, the more he wriggles from side to side when he performs. So I highly recommend the live sessions on YouTube. Check in on a Friday or a Sunday and also uh, visit snakedavis.rocks where you can find out more about Snake. We begin the interview by exploring a comment that Snake made in a previous interview some time ago where he said that uh, inspirational teachers were a big part of his life, even as far back as primary school. Um, and it seems to me that most musicians can name at least one teacher at some point in their career who uh, provided a platform for them to be creative and encourage them to pursue music. Yeah, for me, definitely. it's. I, I didn't realise at the time was that this will be the case with many musicians that you've talked to, but primary school, you know, the age from the age of five to ten or whatever it was, I grew up in South Wales, and that was Mrs. Thomas, who was my um, primary school teacher, and she was very keen on music herself, and, you know, it was one of my earliest childhood memories is standing beside her at the piano, singing under the linden tree and things like that and being getting the part the singing part of prince charming in the <laughs> in in the school play you know <laughs> and and that was when uh, you know I, I feel the tingle now thinking about it that was when the light bulb went on in me you know this is a beautiful thing music making music singing you know um, sharing music performing and I loved it from then, so that was definitely the most influential teacher ever for me. So you grew up in Mid Wales, is that correct? New South Wales, Newport. Newport right, yeah. okay. How do how do you pronounce that that school that you went to? Uh, Glasloch. Crikey, okay. Glasloch. Yeah, and were you, were you from a musical family? No, not at all. I mean, my mum, she used to say that uh, if it hadn't been for the fact that my Grandpa used to put his fingers in his ears every time she practiced a violin. She might have carried it <laughs> on, but, but that's it, you know. Um, no music at all. I mean, they were really, really supportive. 
um, you know, the old saying, driving your kid around to music lessons and all that mm -hmm. kind of thing. And just being encouraging, even when I started to go into the business, I mean, it's obviously the classic thing is your mum and dad will say, well, it's all right as a hobby, but, you know, you need a proper job. But there was none of that, you know, they were really encouraging. So I was really lucky from that. But no, no, no musical influence in the family. So it was, it was really hugely rooted in school and the community, wasn't it? Uh, the music that you experienced. Yeah, um, yeah singing in church and Ice Thetfords and um, competitions and, and singing. In so what did you grow up listening to mainly? Was it the hymnals in school and, and more choral uh, choir items? and? Um, there's all kinds of things. I mean, at home, it was mostly classical music that mum and dad yeah. listened to and uh, <clears throat> and a bit of sort of soft classical as a singer called Kenneth McKellar, who's kind of a Scottish classical with a bit of folk in there. And he was one of my mum's favourites. And uh, and just strong melodies that I'd hear coming from, from down the stairs, you know, Beethoven, Bach, all that kind of thing. Well, I never... At that, that time, I never thought, oh, I love classical yeah. music. But now I remember all those strong melodies. And then I got into pop, you know, in my early teens, as, as everybody did. And then by the age of 15, 16, I was really solidly starting to get into Tamla Motown, Stax Atlantic yeah. kind of music. And that's when I started going to uh, discos, you know, <laughs> that, that was what was being played then. And that's what <clears throat> really moved me and I, I kind of... I'm at heart. I'm a soul boy. Have been. I mean, you know, you, you're known as one of the country's top sax players, and it, it looks, um, you know, that that wasn't always the case. Because didn't you go to university and study English and philosophy? So, were you, you know, planning a career initially in one of those areas? Um, I had no plan really, Craig. You know, I think people people plan a lot more these days, and you're encouraged to have a plan and a plan for life and a game plan and a plan for your education but I don't have anything mapped out at all uh, I just uh, you know I loved English literature and uh, philosophy sounded fascinating you know I was a thinker I guess and a sort of a contemplator more on the quiet side by nature and uh, so that all appealed to me but I had no apart from I had this vague notion that I might become a psychiatric nurse I'm not quite sure where that came from um, but I was really loving the music and I was, I was quite late to the sax, you know. I, was, um, I didn't start flute till I was 18 and then sax a year later. So I was already at university or just about to go. And uh, it wasn't until, although I'd been doing music since the age of six or seven, I never ever thought about music as a career until about three or four months after I picked that saxophone up. I thought, this is another level, you know. I'm so loving like falling in love it was like the light bulb going on I thought yeah I wonder I wonder if I, you know, if I could make this work but you know by that time I'm halfway through the first year at university and I loved the course yeah. I thought well I'm going to stick with it you know, I'll stick with this course and uh, and I did the two things together you know, I started joining bands I was in Liverpool it was a great city to be in so I was in I was in a funk band and a punk band <laughs> and uh, um, was there a particular moment when you thought, you know what, I'm going to, I'm going to pick up a sax. I've, I've been a singer. I played flute, multiple, you know, woodwind instruments, but I'm going to try the sax. Was it, you know, for me, Snake, it was, it was when David Sanborn was pl played on the Diamond Dogs album with David Bowie. Yeah. 
and that kind of using effects mm -hmm. pedals on his instrument and all of a sudden there was this wow you know it started almost like you know electric guitar being played um was there something along those lines for you um for me it was J junior walker and uh, maceo parker with with james brown and and it was the it was this real feeling that I hadn't found the right instrument. The flute was, was a bit quiet and wimpy for what I wanted. You know, I wanted something with edge and soul. And, uh, and that, once again, that was a, it was a sort of realisation. Oh, silly me, it's obvious. I need a saxophone, yeah. you know. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah, that was how that happened. So at this point, you were still studying the English and philosophy. You'd not, because you, you then moved on over to Leeds, didn't you, onto one of the jazz courses there? Yeah. Um, so, yeah, so I played in bands in Liverpool and carried on the studies, obviously finished my degree, um, formed the intention to try and somehow make it in the music business. Um, found out about that jazz course in Leeds, which was one of the first jazz courses at the time, in the very late mm. 70s, and uh, enrolled on that. Um, and that was it really, well, it was, went there it wasn't really everything i'd hoped so i didn't finish it off and plus i got offered a, a yeah. proper job playing on a cruise boat for six months i got, I got the way. impression that it wasn't it was almost like one of the first barriers that you came across on that course there that you enjoyed the playing but maybe the the, the course content wasn't what you expected is that fair to say yeah it's fair to say and uh, and and sadly um my, my saxophone teacher at college although he's a lovely guy he wasn't a great teacher and you know he wasn't really interested in teaching it was just a gig gig for him and I didn't have the wherewithal about me to sort of prize the information out of him which I probably could have if I'd understood the whole process of, of learning and education and teaching more like I think I do now but I mean at the age of well, what was I, I was 20 21 then um, you haven't got things fi like no, that figured course, out I don't think of course so, not no absolutely uh, if you don't so, so yeah, it wasn't by far the best thing about the Leeds College was the, the, the other musicians that I met yeah. there. You know, my my peer, who I still stay in touch yeah. with some of them. I love how you've 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 gone from you know sort of punk to soul and that contemporary. I mean, did you avoid that rather than the kind of straight ahead obvious jazz styles? Did you lean more towards that more contemporary side of music? Yeah, I always did. You know, it's, it was what I loved, and, and the, the punk band was it, it was more an accident, really. It was with um, a fellow. What was his name? He went on to form the Lightning Seeds. I can't remember the name. Um, that was just something I fell into. But the, the, the funk and soul band was more kind of more my bag, and I was just always a melody man. I was always a, a, a soul guy, and I, I discovered the jazz players and the jazz tradition and the idiom through learning the saxophone because there were so many great proponents, if that's mm. the right word, of, of that style. But I still, it wasn't for me particularly. I mean, I was keen to learn how to do it and I still go out and do jazz gigs, but really I just wanted to play beautiful melodies and I really, it was my sound yeah. that I wanted. I wanted the sound that I had in my And head. I think that, that's that's what comes over, that's just... It's just, just just so wonderful to listen to you play, because you just take the listener on a, a journey with you. Um, 
I mean, so so was there a moment when this now became, you know, I want to become a full-time professional at this? Uh, was there a particular event or a moment or did it happen organically? Um, it was it was organic, really. There wasn't a particular day when I made that decision, as far as I'm aware. But pretty soon after, you know, within six months of playing the saxophone, I thought, I'm going to have a go. You know, I want to be in a band and and see if that, that could be a career. You know, that's the first time I'd ever, even though I'd made so much music and played in folk clubs and village halls and all that kind of thing through school, playing the guitar and singing mainly, I never ever thought I could do this for a job, you know. Just yeah. didn't, just, <laughs> just never crossed my mind really. But yes, the love of the saxophone, I just thought, I really, really want to get good at this and see if I can have a yeah. crack, you know. I mean, it's notoriously yeah. difficult to make a living as a musician, isn't it? And you've sustained it for so many years now. Have you got, have you got a particular secret or how you've done that or? <laughs> Um, no particular secret, but I do, as, as many other musicians will, and, and I'm sure you're the same yourself, you advise people not to, not to go into it if they, for Absolutely. the money or if they think it's going to make them a fortune because it's very, very unlikely to do that. And I think, I firmly believe what has sustained me is the love of music. You know, every day, whether I've got a gig to go to or whether it's a streaming day, Every day I get up and I want to play. I look forward to, to practicing and playing. And uh, and the whole community, the spirit, the musicians that I've made, my musician friends, um, and the feeling of, of playing live and making music with other people, that has just sustained me through everything, really, through illness, through periods of you know not having many gigs, not making much money or things being cancelled, which as a musician or as a self-employed person, a freelance person, we're all familiar with those massive setbacks, you know, when your American tour gets cancelled <laughs> a week to go and you've got a three-month, we call it a snowblind period, <laughs> nothing in your yeah. diary. That's, that's just wanting to play and my love of music and my love of um, tone and sounds has just sustain me always you know. wonderful have you got have you still got a disciplined practice regime now after all these years do you have a structure i'm not as structured and disciplined as, as some of my colleagues who will use apps you know telling them to do such and such a, a study for seven minutes then record it then move on to something else um so i'm not structured and disciplined in that way but i am in, in that I want to practice every day and I want to do a certain amount on at least one, probably two of the four saxophones and at least one of the woodwind instruments. And, you know, so every day um, I will have done some practice by midday and then, you know, whatever else the day has, which might be recording or admin, all that kind of thing. Um, I just won't start that unless I've done that couple of hours of practice, you know, so I still consider it absolutely essential and I still want to move on, I still want to get better and I strongly believe that as a sax player you'll know yourself. You have to do a certain amount of practice just to stay as good as you are. If you want to keep going, especially when we get a bit older, you have to work really hard and put those hours in. And, and lockdown has been brilliant 
for me in that I've taught more. I've thought about teaching more and I'm putting together um, a set of online clinics, which are well behind schedule, but they're going to happen. I'm determined. I really enjoyed thinking about that. And I do a little bit of one-on-one -on -one teaching and I really love that, just finding ways to help people and coming up with new drills. And then I use them on myself. Uh, right now I'm trying to improve my my breathing, my use of the air, the airstream. The, and I think in one way it's daft that I'm doing that. I'm in my 60s and I'm still trying to learn to breathe better. But on the other it makes perfect sense. Absolutely. And I, and I think it's a it's a fitness level, isn't it, playing the woodwind instrument? And, and unless you you know, maintain that fitness level, it very quickly falls away. You mentioned earlier that, that you've sustained and maintained your love of music through periods of illness. Have you, have you found any, have you had anything serious or are you happy to talk about that? Or Yeah, I don't mind talking about it at all. I had a, <clears throat> a real bad episode, uh, October. Um, I just more or less sort of collapsed, went to A&E and I had sepsis, so I was in... Right in hospital for about a week, you know, with them investigating and trying to find the right drugs to sort me out. And then a long period of sort of um, different scans and tests followed that and it, it all turned out fine, but it took a long time. Mm. Um, but yeah, I mean, through that, one of the worst things about it was not being able to practice for a week. You know? Exactly, yeah. And I guess that motivation to get back into the practice room would have kept you going and given you a target. Yeah. I mean, I think, you know, people, I mean, obviously you've been on your tragic cancer journey and uh, you can't help think about that probably every day. And, you know, we had a happier outcome with, with uh, my wife, Sally, who, um, she had a blood cancer and that was uh, a grim few years with that you know but she's pulled through thankfully and uh, I have another colleague who's going through the mill right now and if uh, who knows the, the actual truth of this but it does seem to me that if you have a positivity if you have great motivation for for something like music it can definitely help you know I mean it can't you know wouldn't have brought your Joe back but um but you're absolutely right. I mean, he was he was a drummer, and we even though he was on chemo, and he was it was against every medical bit of advice going. He insisted on carrying on and doing the gigs, and we used to take him to the, the biggest dives these these venues. And yeah, and he get he get uh, neutropenic, he get some sort of infection, be back in, but nothing would stop him. Snake, the music just came first, and, and it's a it's a wonderful thing, isn't it? it really is. That's a great great motivator. listening to the Joe Gilligan Trust podcast with this week's guest, Snake Davis. You mentioned uh, King Curtis as a significant inspiration and he, he was a real showman, wasn't he? Particularly with that big R&B sound and King Curtis and the King Men and of course they supported the Beatles and 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 are you influenced by musicians who connect 
with the audience in that way, rather than, shall we say, the more complex, for want of a better word, musicians like Coltrane or at the time in the UK, Toby Hayes. Yeah. Um, I am more influenced, definitely. I mean, King Curtis was my absolute main man ever. And people like Junior Walker and Maceo Parker and Tom Scott and David Sanborn, who you mentioned. Um, but it's it's the music. It's not the way they present it. I mean, uh, some of them are showmen, you know, some of them walk the bar and lie on their back and play. Mm. Uh, and, and some of them don't, you know, David Sanborn and anything like that. He just gets on stage and plays. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, so it it wasn't that side it wasn't the showmanship side it was the, it was the music because it was the, the soul singers that came first for me Smokey Robinson Rita Franklin Wilson Pickett um, and the guys that I just mentioned they're very much like vocal versions of I mean sax sax versions instrumental versions of, of, of that kind of style you know that soul putting a song across putting a tune across I mean I love culture and I love Charlie Parker but don't quite hit me there like like the soul men yeah absolutely agree 100 percent. and I've, i think there's something so memorable about a strong you know melodic line that maybe you, you don't take from an improvised complex riff um and listening to some of the wonderful soul singers um fantastic and i, I think there's a real lesson for emerging musicians from your live stream sessions on youtube and because you do take the audience on this journey with you through the music and you offer something for everybody. You sing and you play multiple wood, woodwind instruments. Um, has this method of engaging with your audience come from all the years of gigs and venues and good and bad crowds? Yeah, yeah. It's a, I mean, from, from early on being on stage, people pointed out or observed that I had charisma and good stage presence. I was told things like that. But... It's not something I ever thought about at that stage. And in the early days, I didn't engage with the audience that much, you know, I'd say. And that was so-and-so, and this next one is by so-and-so. And, -so, and you know, it's on our cassette tape, which is, <laughs> you know, reading off a script and then play the music. But I think as I matured and perhaps gained in confidence and, and observed other people, I just wanted to, to talk more, and to, to tell stories and to engage and to, I suppose, to um, expose my, my inner thoughts, my character, rather than have that um, painted smile, you know. Um, it's quite a risky thing to do in many ways, especially on the, the dodgier gigs. But um, I'd, it's just something that happened naturally, organically, to use the, the, the word you used a bit ago, which is a great word. And and, and that was something very important to me. And uh, the example I use if I'm talking to other musicians, colleagues, singers, is that, you know, you you might come along to hear my band because you're a real sax nut. But, you know, your friend that you brought along or your partner that you brought along might be that much into saxophones you know so i want to capture them as well i want to make them my friend and and entertain them really i want them to get their 12 pound 50s worth you know and walk out with a smile on their face that that's, somebody said to me the other day i'd, I'd done a, a birthday greeting for, for somebody you know a video thing and popped it off to them and they said oh that really put a smile on my face and i thought oh that is my job putting smiles on people's faces you know and 
you know, not, not every musician would agree with that. But to me, that, that is my job, is to cheer people up, to take them away for, for a little while from the humdrum or from the pain of whatever's going on in their lives. And if I, and if I can do that, I've done my job. And I, one of the things I say to young students at, at the college where I teach is that it's not enough to be virtuoso on your instrument. It's not enough. You've also got to engage with your listener and you've got to. And I think you do it brilliantly how you take the audience on this journey with you. And I don't know if anybody else has ever said this to you, but you do transmit a level of calm when you play. I've noticed it particularly in the uh, At Dawn track from the Time Stand Still album. And I was curious to find out if mindfulness or meditation was mm-hmm. a part of your daily life at all, and if you'd ever practised it. Um, I've meditated since I was 17. Me and my mum got um, initiated on the same day to a transcendental meditation, um, which is a... I don't know if you know about it or not, but it's, um, it's one of many ways to meditate. It's not; it's kind of connected with um, Hindu or Sanskrit spirituality in some ways, but it's not taught in a religious way. It wasn't when we learnt it. Well, not you know, it's a bit spiritual, but it's not like you've got to sign to be a member of this sect or anything. Um, and I've always done that. Not, not you know definitely every day or anything but from from time to time and bit of yoga bit of pilates and enjoying the the japanese garden and visiting temples and being a good listener and the, the philosophy studying philosophy i think that's helped as well so and and my strong delight did desire to communicate and and to help people and um all those things, I think, combined with the, the music that I love and uh, and the melodies, um, has all helped that side. And, and people do say that, do say that to me. And I got a message from somebody the other day. Said, um, I just wanted to make contact. We we met 25 years ago at a venue in Plymouth, and uh, I told you that uh, you're a shaman. And she said, I'm a shaman. And uh, I said to her. I remember that conversation. You know, I don't remember anything about the gig, but I remember that conversation. <laughs> it was a special conversation. Well, you talk about, we've just been talking about the importance of, you know, connecting with your listener, crikey, all those years ago. And uh, so would you, would you class yourself as a spiritual person? Yeah, I think so. Yeah. 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 And, and, and you relax away from music by things like, you know, visiting the temples and, you know, meditation and Pilates. That's, that's your way of switching off, is it? Yeah, that's my way of switching off, and um, and walking. You know, I love be able to do it much lately, but um, mm. walking out in the countryside. That that level of calm that that's because I think it's all about what people transmit and receive, and even when it's the funkiest, most soulful tenor sax solo, I can I don't know. There's still a a presence about the way you play. There's there's still a a thought process behind it and it, I, I don't know how to you know describe it really but it's 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 quite it's very very present um yeah so that's wonderful um and i think some some people do the best work when they're under pressure and and i wondered how you reacted to stress and ache whether it enhances your creativity or whether it brings out the demon in you yeah that's, that's an interesting one and um it doesn't happen very often these days but it, you know we were struggling on a country in a transit van and doing hairy gigs um, 
sometimes you'd be under a lot of pressure. It could be something that was accidental, like you turn up late, or the sound system is rubbish, or the audience are just not on your side. And so, but I did find that, ironically, sort of being ang being angry. I don't feel anger that much, but you know, I used to more being angry or being upset or being stressed or put under a lot of pressure sometimes used to make you play better <laughs> you know you just put that extra effort subconsciously really because I try and make a lot of effort every time I play in in you know play every gig like it's the last one do your best or and always have that kind of um, mantra going that kind of pressure it can go the other way sure just make you kind of over try and screw up but Reading your biography, you've played with some amazing people in your career. Is there a memorable piece of advice that you've been given from anyone that you could share with us? Yeah, it's a couple of things. One that springs to mind is, um, and he's not one of the more famous people, but he's um, one of the kind of beside, behind the scenes guys, a bit more like myself. There's a record producer called Richard Niles, and he was one of the first guys, record producer type guys who... Um, had a lot of faith in me and kind of brought me down to London from Yorkshire, I think was what I was living at the time. And uh, in a one particularly edgy session where, you know, I tried this solo so many different times and I was kind of feeling, oh, I'm wasting everybody's time, you know, this is a big posh studio. And he said to me, you know, he said, well, one good thing you can do in that, is, he gave me two bits of advice, he said, one, just put the horn down, just go and walk around the block, come back. And the other thing he said was, um, which is a bit more interesting, he said, what you need to do is you jump out of your own skin, you go across the other side of the room and you just take a look at yourself and you go, now what advice could I give this guy? You know, and it might be, you know, mate, you just want to roll your shoulders, you know, you, or it might be, um, you know what, you're just coming out this solo, you're too fast and with too much... Um, too much sort of you're too full on too early just ease you know anything like that but that thing of looking at yourself from <laughs> from above seems to me hover above yourself and say well, what advice could i give this guy yeah yeah and then with other people you know i don't know guys like david stewart from the arrhythmics and lisa stansfield um it's not so much things they said to me but it's just seeing them in action you know if you you tour with somebody, you see them day in, day out. You see them first thing in the morning, last thing at night. You see them at soundcheck. You see them when they're tired. You see them when they're on fire, you know, and just just observing yeah, and uh, kind of soaking it up, you know. And if you could collaborate again with anybody, yeah. if you could choose one person to go and work with again, would there be, who'd come to mind? Oh, out of everybody. Um, not one person in particular. I mean, I'd love to... I'd love to be back on the road with, with Lisa or in the studio because that was <clears throat> very special time in my life. The first world tour. Yeah. Um, first time on Top of the Pops and in the charts and all that kind of thing. A massively exciting time. And and uh, any chance to repeat that would be very welcome. Swing Out Sister, similarly, you know, such fond memories and always a great time socially and musically on the road. And... Uh, and then I always had this kind of burning ambition to work with Van Morrison. And I've done just one gig with him. 
and I did get the solos because somebody else was doing the solo. <laughs> really, that's not a proper gig. So yeah, I know he's he's a has a reputation for possibly being an awkward so and so from time to time. He does. Yeah, yeah. I would still relish the opportunity to to join his band and James Taylor also. I thought that gig would suit me because I could play a bit of whistle as well as the sax. You know, yeah. I love his music. So, but amazing. Yeah, absolutely. But, you absolutely. Know, I'm the, I'm happy as I am also, you know. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Mm. So, I mean, you've, you've really, you know, you've been on the road in the, in the, in the van touring around and done it that way. And then at the other end of the scale, I suppose you've been in some fairly high class yeah. touring situations as well. So uh, Occasionally travelled business class and, and sat in very posh tour buses with lovely bunks for <laughs> both, <laughs> both ends of the, the spectrum. Yeah. Yeah. And and you were involved in the early days of the tube, weren't you? As well, did you did you perform with the band there, or was that um, um, like a house band? Or no, uh, the tube. Uh, I think I may have done it once or twice as a visiting musician with with uh, kind of posh artists, but I did it mm. um, very memorable occasion. I, I, I did it on my own, a live performance of a, a, a jazz ballad called Willow Wheat for me. That was when it was um, Jules Holland and Paula Yates. Yeah. Uh, it was a celebration of the anniversary of the invention of the saxophone, 150 years, I think. That's what it was. Ah. So that that's that was um, that was just something that uh, was a bit of a milestone in my career, kind of. Yeah. Because at the time it was quite a cutting edge show, wasn't yeah, it? Yeah, it was, it was a great show to be on. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely, and. Um, an unusual pairing, really, Jules Holland and Paulie Yates, but it seemed to work well, didn't they? Yeah, yeah. Um, you mentioned earlier, Snake, that you're involved in education projects. Is that is that something now that you're doing more of? Is that a recent thing, or have you always done it? I've always done it, Craig. I've always... Um, my, my oldest lad now is uh, 27, 28, and right from his first primary school, I used to go into the schools and or offer myself you know is to say this is, this is me this is what i do um i'd be really happy to come in with all the instruments and chat chat to the children you know it just seemed like a natural thing to do so i did do it yeah. i did you know, i got three children and i've played all their primary schools and some of their secondary schools and 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 then that spreads and you know if there's a headmaster or a head of music in the audience they might sort of tentatively come up to me and say, oh, you were just telling that story about, you know, would you come to our school? <laughs> oh, you know, sometimes there's a fee involved, more often there's not. Um, I'm looking forward to getting back with my local primary school, which is 200 yards that way. I used to go in until we got locked down and locked out. I used to go in every Tuesday morning and take and help take the choir, you know, and that was, uh, that was come rain or come shine. I'd be there, you know, unless I was the other side of the world or something. That's brilliant. You mentioned the pandemic. Well, the arts and uh, the music business and theatres, I mean, it's in such a fragile place at the moment. Do you think we'll bounce back? Do you think, uh, you know, music will survive this? I guess it's survived worse in its history. Um, probably not in in our lifetimes, I don't think. Yeah. I'm remain optimistic, I really and hopeful and a bit fearful at the same time. Um, you know, for the 
tragedy that for listeners and performers, both sort of spiritually and financially for my colleagues and the younger ones, you know, I'm, I'm all right, really. You know, I'm mortgage is paid and I've been doing it for 40 years, but the youngsters, I just feel so worried for them, you know, and, and concerned. And, you know, every time we think, yeah, yeah, we start rescheduling those gigs and then they get pulled out again, you know, and some people have just had to yeah. find other jobs, you know, and give up. Um, well, let's hope there's a confidence uh, from um, from venue owners, from audiences. Um, let's hope it gets back on its feet as quickly as possible and as safely as possible. Yeah, there's two two camps on that really. There's people, uh, promoters and venue owners who who think people are going to want to rush back, you know, as soon as they possibly can. And I'm hoping that they're the ones that, that are right, not the ones that say, oh, it's going to be a long time before people feel confident enough to go and sit next to an, another person, somebody that they're not related to and they're not in a bubble with, uh, to use that new word. Um, I really hope that the first ones are right. <laughs> yeah. Have you coped in lockdown, Snake? Have you just have you just focused on the family and, and home projects and things and... Yeah, it's been fine for me, and the the live streams that the, like the one you dropped in on, that's that's been a, a saviour. That's given me a great focus. You know, first of all, I was doing them every single night. You know, really? uh, yeah, pretty much. Uh, two, two a week now is is great, and you know that's that's a real special, important thing now. And those guys are not going to let me stop ever, even with, let's say when proper gigging comes back. That yeah. I'm still. I'll probably do a midweek one or something yeah. because it's, you know, it's allowed me to to reach and connect with people who might not be able to get to gigs or only come to one a year because they live in on the Lizard Peninsula or something. Yeah. So it's, it's been a real revelation. And that's on Fridays and Sundays at 7 p.m., isn't it, on YouTube? Yeah. Um, and I would really advise anybody listening to just check in because it's, it's, a, it's a really, some really lovely evening's entertainment. It's great. Um, Thank you. So what, what projects other than this have you got planned for the future? Have you got anything immediately coming up that you're excited about? Um, well, during one of those periods between the heavy lockdowns, we managed to put on some carefully socially distanced, physically distanced, I should say, shows in a field behind our local village hall where we live. And uh, that'll probably be the first opportunity to get back out gigging again oh. um, so we're so excited we bought a more heavy duty gazebo to, <laughs> to protect the to protect the microphones and the amps you know, against the vagaries of the british weather yeah um so and, and they were lovely uh, occasions you know it's a massive field but we could only sort of safely put 100 people in there but i mean those will be great if we can repeat them as the weather gets better and as the the roadmap moves on and th people, th things start to get gradually unlocked. I mean, nobody is planning big tours. So, you know, quite often I would go to Japan and do 20 or 30 shows with a rock star over there in the autumn. Uh, it's, it's, I'm just assuming that's not going to happen this year, you know. And uh, so, so I'm really looking forward to starting to gig in whatever form 
is, is practical and sensible, you know, as things gradually open back up. That's my hope and wish, really. And uh, um, I'm quite excited about getting the... Um, my missus would laugh at saying this because she just tells me it's never going to happen because you're so far behind schedule, but the online clinics that I'm doing, I, th I think uh, I'm excited about that. And I'm, you know, in my mind, it's all mapped out, you know, 40 different videos of these... You know, how to do this, how to do that, how to, how to get your sound better, how to keep... <laughs> but, but there's only about two actually ready to go so far, so I can't release them. But that's been exciting too. One of the things that strikes me is that you're still excited about maintaining and improving your tone. After all these years, it's still something that's, you know, priority to you. And I think that's such a valuable lesson for any young sax player listening to this, that, you know, Snake Davis still wants to wants to get better and to sound better. Um, great stuff. Yeah, <laughs> I've been thinking. Um, I wish I'd had a few more lessons when I was younger as well. I think it's taken me, uh, like I was telling you 20 minutes ago, that I'm working on my breathing again. Well, not that I don't work on it every day anyway, really, because it's always the yeah. mind. But and thinking about teaching and coming up with new drills, I think I could have done with a few more lessons when I was younger. <laughs> yeah, too late for that now. But I, I, I'm having lessons on. Um, the Shakuhachi, I would probably wouldn't have played that one Friday. It's, oh, you'll have heard it on the Time Standstill album. Yes, yeah, yeah. That's been really inspiring, and I've been to some, I've been some amazing uh, online, you know, Zoom-based workshops with uh, really inspirational teachers from all around the world. So, I've been two of those during lockdown, which I've really enjoyed. You know, it's been fantastic. That sounds great. Yeah, been really good. Snake, it's been an absolute pleasure talking to you. Thank you so much for doing this again. I know I've said this about five times, but the way you play connects with the listener. And to me, that's everything. To me, being a you know good musician is just about that, really. If you can move the person listening to you and make the hair stand up on the back of the neck, and that's what it's all about. Talking my language, Greg. What an absolute gentleman. Thank you very much, Chris Snake Davis. Very, very much appreciated. And um, a real pleasure and a privilege to talk to you today.